Do you know what an oxymoron is? Now, not a moron, but an oxymoron, all right? It's uh, uh, a self-contradicting phrase. For example, I'll give you a few that I find interesting. Um, these are oxymorons. Jumbo shrimp. Freezer burn. White chocolate. Plastic silverware. Sanitary landfill. Now here's one. I hope it doesn't offend anybody. Professional wrestling. <laughs> now there's one oxymoron that um, uh, that shouldn't be, and it's boring worship. Worship is never intended to be boring. Now I grant you that some church services are not always as, uh, I don't want to say entertaining, that's not the right word, but there are some things that happen within some churches that make it a little bit difficult, at, uh, especially if you're not a believer. Um, what happens in a uh, worship service can be somewhat dull, and even if you are a believer, sometimes you're not as engaged as maybe you should be, but the essence of what worship should be, and we, we're going to talk again about worship. We did this a couple weeks ago, and I appreciate Jim uh, speaking so well last week uh, when I was not uh, well, and uh, we're just going to pick up the series entitled, The Heart of Worship. And again, there's not a big, um, you know, I'm just kind of taking this week to week and different emphases, but one of the things that to me is important when we talk about worship especially here in the beginning, a lot of times we talk about worship, we tend to focus on styles, techniques, music, preferences, and those type of things. And that does have some element to it, but at least here in these first few weeks, I want to kind of just lay a foundation to make sure that when we talk about worship, that we make sure that we understand what the focus of worship is all about. And so, our desire uh, when we come together is to say, do we have a, a biblical picture? Do we have a biblical understanding of what worship is? And I know that many of you have been in church for many years, and um, this is not necessarily new. Uh, maybe you have different backgrounds and some of the things that maybe coming to Grace Church, singing and different elements of worship, they're a little different maybe than uh, what you were raised with, and maybe you're a new believer, and maybe you're still not even sure what worship is. We, uh, we might, you know, we put on a sign, worship service, 10 a.m., so that's, you know, what we do for an hour and a half, that's what we do, as though we do not involve ourselves in worship in the other 23 or whatever it is, 22 plus hours of the day, that that's not a part of worship. So as Christians... As we talk about what is the heart of worship, heart of worship, as I said, it's not about techniques, it's not about styles, it's not about the music or the volume of those things. Those affect how we worship. Those are involved in how we worship, but that really is not the heart of worship. So even though we may have a different approach in worship to other uh, churches. I mean, if you went even just within a mile radius, you would find a variety of ways that churches have gathered uh, to worship, and it won't all be the same. We bring 
our individuality. We bring various preferences to it. We bring our ethnicity background to it, right? Uh, we bring all of those things, but the goal, whether whatever quote-unquote style it is, should be that which glorifies God and is biblical in its basic essence of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, sometimes we get distracted on styles and different types of music, but what is the heart of worship? So we're just kind of laying a foundation for a few weeks, but, but again, this is not just worship that involves what we do corporately as a church. We're going to talk about how how do, how do I worship? How do, what do I bring? You know, we focus a lot of times and we say this is the, the worship team up here as though they are the only ones that are worshiping and that we are just kind of observers or we are spectators. No, they're really prompters to assist us to engage in worship. It's not about the worship team. They're just assisting us or should be to lead us together and worship. But do I have a responsibility when I come to church to, to engage in worship? Do I have a responsibility to prepare myself for worship? And we'll talk about those things in the coming weeks. But just by way of reminder, since I uh, started this a couple weeks ago, just to kind of uh, warm things up a little bit, is that when we worship, we are worshiping God. Now we're going to look, in fact, you can go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 96. We're going to look at that in a minute. But Psalm 96, it's interesting that in these 13 verses, uh, God is mentioned by name or a pronoun in every verse uh, except two of them. So the focus in the psalm, like many of the psalms, but especially the one that we'll look at today, the focus is that we worship God. Worship, again, is not, you know, us to hear our favorite songs. And we do have preferences and songs that we like better than others, right? That's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. There's songs that are sung here, and you're like, eh, you know, I'm not so crazy about it. Oh, I really like that. I wish they would do that. But if they did it every week, you'd get sick of it, right? Just like if you ate some your favorite food every week, you'd get tired of it. Well, maybe pizza, maybe not. We ever get tired of that. But, but, but it's not, again, about our our individual preference that we bring, and even though we can't quite divorce it from that, we want to make sure that whatever we do, that we ourselves understand that first and foremost, when we gather together, we are here to worship God. We believe in God. We believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in God. And so worship means to give worth, worthship, to ascribe worth to something. We're ascribing worth to God when we worship. And, when you, uh, and we probably will do this in a message, is look at the various patterns of worship from Genesis to Revelation. When you think about it, in the very beginning in the garden, worship was what blew this whole thing up. The Lord says, you're going to worship me and obey me and, and, and do you have everything provided for you, but Adam and Eve chose not to ascribe worth to God, but to ascribe worth to the voice of the enemy and disobeyed God. Think about the very first murder in the Bible. Cain and Abel was over what? Was in the context of what? Worship. In fact, if you even go beyond that to the fall of Satan, what did Lucifer desire he wanted to be worshipped. So worship isn't just some little side thing. 
that, uh, you know, few musicians are into worship. Worship is at the very heart of the fiber and fabric of Scripture. I uh, sometimes, it seems like recently, uh, quote A.W. Tozer, an uh, author who's uh, in heaven, but he wrote uh, a book called Worship, the Missing Jewel. And I think he really gets to and reminds us that the ultimate purpose of why God saved us was that he saved us at, to be worshipers of him. Listen to something, it'll be on the screen. A.W. Tozer wrote just a small quote. He said, The purpose of God in sending his son to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of God the Father was that he might restore to us the missing jewel. He, I like that phrase. That he would restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to, always, to Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. He calls it the missing jewel. And sometimes in the church, we spend a lot of time on doing a lot of different things. But do we have, are we missing the missing jewel that worship is ascribed to be? And I thought that was a helpful quote. And this morning, the title of today's message as we uh, unpack the theme, the heart of worship, is this morning from Psalm 96. I want us to look at four essentials to worship. Four essentials to worship. Four essentials or imperatives that when we talk about worship, remember, uh, we're laying a foundation. We're laying uh, kind of the groundwork. We're laying down some things. So as we talk about things in the future, we want to make sure that we've got the foundation laid. And what are, in Psalm 96, what are some of these imperatives or essentials regarding worship. And it's all right there in Psalm 96, and uh, we're just going to walk through it together. Notice, first of all, that the first essential is that we exalt His name. That we exalt His name. In verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 96, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 2, sing to the Lord. Bless his name. You see the idea there? Is that we are to exalt God. Am I exalting God? Am I exalting God in my worship? But notice that it says that we are to sing to the Lord as we exalt His name. It says that we are to sing a new song. A word can mean something that is brand new and also means that word uh, when it speaks about a new song, it, it can mean uh, something that is brand new, but it also can mean something that is delightful, precious, exquisite. Sing a delightful, exquisite, precious song to the Lord. Not just mouthing words and our mind is off in la-la land because we're familiar with the song, 
Have you ever done that? You're shopping, you know, in, in uh, Walmart or somewhere, and, you know, they're playing the music, and you haven't heard that since 1974, you know? And you remember the two guys or guy, whatever you're with, and all of a sudden, that song you haven't heard comes back, and you're singing it while you're doing your shopping. I mean, music is an amazing thing. And by the way, uh, music is something that is very um, noteworthy as a distinguishing mark and uniqueness of Christianity, of really of the, of, of the Hebrew and the Judeo-Christian uh, faith. You know, I don't think Islam is noted for any tremendous music. I mean, they have the chants and the call to, and those type of things, but as far as the music... Um, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, I mean, Christianity uh, embedded in our Hebrew culture and our Jewish roots of worship, music. Why? Because music is an expression and a gift of God. Even, even if you're not a Christian, the harmony and the music of, of an orchestra or some of the singing, there's something that, again, just like art, uh, it is something that is expressive of the creativeness of who made us, God and all his beauty and wonders. I mean, what did he say? Uh, Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or wear or drink or, you know, all those things. And he gives the example of how Solomon and all his great wisdom couldn't have mastered the beauty and the variety that God and his creation has given. God is the master artist. He's the master musician. There's a scripture in Job that speaks about the stars singing to the Lord. God, Jesus said that if you will not worship me, I have the ability to make these rocks cry out in worship. Well, I don't want rocks doing what my job is to do, right? I want to worship the Lord. But there's something about this new song. Now, you know, I guess uh, if we sang a familiar song, we we may, you know, if we sang Kumbaya, there's chances are there's not much growth in singing Kumbaya. Kumbaya, you know, that, that thing, right? Uh, probably hadn't heard that since 10th grade camp or something. But, but, but there's something about when there's a new song, even when the worship team does something new. And it may not be new, new. It may be new to you. But it provokes you, and it should provoke you, to, to pay attention. There's something new there. There's something new that is being expressed there. The songs that we sing today, many of them have embedded with them biblical imagery. When it, uh, what was the one uh, you know, about turning graves into gardens? I want to make sure I didn't get it backwards. Gardens, that's what I do. I turn gardens into graves. That's, that's my job. But no. Uh, but but it's talk about turning bones into armies. Now, I, would, I bet some, many of you thought, you're not familiar with what that's a reference. Bones, and a, that's a reference to Ezekiel 37, about the valley of dry bones, that the Spirit came along and caused these bones to come alive. See, so that's why, again, there's a, there's a meshing between true and good worship and the Word of God, right? It's not separate. So, but there's something about a new song, and that's... Uh, uh, you know, something that I know that is always kind of a tension with, with uh, worship leading and worship design of a service. How do you balance between the familiar and the new? 
And I, I want you to know, I appreciate when new songs that we sing, new songs, we try to balance with familiar songs that we're, you know, that we were familiar with and we know. But there's something healthy about singing new music, new songs, because again, when you look at church history, now stay with me on this, this is important. When you look at church history, one of the things that's a characteristic of church history from the early apostolic uh, fathers that, you know, from the New Testament forward, is that every generation that experienced a, what I would say, a historical revival move of God, one of the things that was unique in that generation was their expression of worship. The worship and the expression of music that was being expressed in the Second, fifth, sixth centuries is completely different than what was being sung in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, at the turn of the 20th century in the uh, 1900s, uh, when you had the immersion of the uh, of, of 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 music, and you had the growth of of even Pentecostal worship, and you had the growth of African American music, you see how that influenced. Uh, the, the church. And so one of the things that's, that I found interesting is that when you look at church history, you see that each generation in, in church history uh, had an expression of what God was doing that was formulated in the type of music and worship they sang. For example, uh, many of you are familiar, because we've talked about it from time to time here, about the Reformation. Martin Luther, all right, uh, 1519, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, and he began to study the Bible, and uh, he took issue with certain practices in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, he was noted for writing down what were called the 95 statements or theses that uh, he nailed to the Wittenberg uh, door there in, in Germany. That was kind of like the public square where people had debate. And as a result of him encountering the Word of God and saying, we don't believe that selling indulgences uh, for salvation, that you can actually pay for a relative to, to get out of hell and go to heaven, we don't really think that's biblical. And he began to teach and reflect on what bi the Bible taught in Romans, that we are saved by grace through faith. And again, that's not the point of this, but just to kind of familiarize Martin Luther, God was doing a significant paradigm shift in his church at the Reformation, all right? Now, here's what I want to say, is that Martin Luther became known for three particular things. The doctrine of salvation by faith, we talk about justification by faith. Uh, he became known for belief that Scripture uh, should be translated in the people's language. Do you realize that Martin Luther uh, translated the New Testament from the Greek into a common German dialect up to that point? Uh, the German language was not unified. It was very uh, colloquial and had different regional dialects. But by him translating the Greek New Testament into a 
into a common German language, it unified the language in Germany. So he was noted for putting the Word of God, taking it out of the scholars' museums and putting it down where people could actually read the Bible and understand it. And the third thing he was noted for in, as, as this reformer was that he saw the value and importance of worship and congregational singing. Within a few years of the birth of the Protestant Reformation in 1519, uh, one of the things that Martin Luther did was he actually created uh, a hymnal. He created a hymnal. He himself wrote many songs. One of the more famous songs that we sing is a mighty fortress is our God. That was birthed. Again, Martin Luther saw the value of music and worship. What's my point? Is that out of that movement of God, God at the same time was expressing what was happening among the people in worship and in music. Fast forward to another period of time. And some of you, again, this may all be new to you, and that's okay, but... That's why you're here, to get something new, challenged a little bit. In 1968, here in the United States that uh, was primarily birthed in Southern California, became known as what was called the Jesus Movement. And a tremendous revival took place that was primarily birthed out of Southern California uh, and God used one particular church initially in the beginning. It doesn't mean it was the only place. But at Calvary Church, a man by the name of Chuck Smith uh, began in this small little church in Costa Mesa, began to preach the Bible. And because it was a uh, surfing area in Costa Mesa, Southern California, had a burden for what were some of you used to be hippies. How many of you admit you were once a hippie, right? All right? All right. I came a little late, but I, I had hippie-ish tendencies, right? Uh, I, I quit McDonald's because I had my hair past my shoulders and I didn't want to get it cut. Uh, so anyway, that's a different story. Now, my brother, my oldest brother was a professional hippie, all right? I mean, he, was a, he went to the University of Berkeley. He, I mean, he was a professional hippie. Uh, but, but my point is, is that one of the, the darker things of that generation was, of course, you know, that period of the 60s of, you know, free drugs, free sex, all that type of thing that was just kind of, the, the, really it was a rebellious spirit of that period. But God used uh, this church, Calvary Church, and this guy named Chuck Smith. And if you looked at him, he didn't look like a hippie. He was a middle-aged bald guy. But you know what he began to do? He began to just teach the Bible, and he began to love these teenagers. And guess what? They came to church and started getting saved. And as they were getting saved, guess what? Mom and dad, who were trying to get them help and delivered from drugs, and, and the government and all the programs couldn't do anything, guess what happened to them? They wanted to come to church and find out why their kids were changing and doing what they were doing. God birthed a revival there in, the, in about 67, 68 that spread all over the country. And many of you are very familiar with that. Some of you, that's, that's a new thing to you. Uh, if you're familiar with Greg Laurie, the evangelist and speaker, Greg Laurie, uh, they're actually making a movie right now that, um, that talks about that that'll be released. But it was a tremendous revival. But here's my point is out of that movement, out of that Jesus revival, 
one of the things that was significantly birthed in that move of God that took place was worship music. Maranatha, which was the label of the Calvary Church. See, you had these young guys who were out playing in rock bands and doing whatever, and they got saved. And guess what? They wanted to start singing, not about having sex and taking drugs and doing whatever. Guess what? They wanted to start singing about Jesus. And they, and they came into this church of Chuck Smith, and, and he talks about how they played some of the songs. Now, this is a church, you know, that was used to taking time number 422. Let's stand, blessed assurance, you know, right? That's a great song, Fanny Crosby, love her, right? But they wanted to start, and he kind of like, well, you know, this is what pastors used to do. If they, if they weren't sure about somebody speaking, they'd usually let them speak on July 4th Sunday or the Sunday after Christmas or New Year's, you know, when attendance was good. Or if they had a Sunday night service, because, you know, they'd like, well, why don't you... So he kind of let them do something on Sunday night. Well, guess what? They started inviting all their musician friends and a significant group called Love Song was birthed, and they began to sing worship music. And some of the, what we call contemporary worship music was birthed. Where did it get birthed? It got birthed out of this renewal of what God was doing in this generation. They wanted to do what? They didn't want to just talk theological about it. They wanted to sing about it. So don't get in some place where you say music that is godly only has to be what was written in this period of time. Listen, a lot of our music in America and our rhythms and the cadence, again, is a product of our European heritage and music structure. But there is entire people groups in our nation that that isn't the way they sing. That's why white folks can't clap Rhythmically, right? We can't keep a beat. I remember the story, some of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, was a, was a martyr that opposed Hitler, was a Lutheran pastor in Germany, and he was put to death a few weeks before the end of World War II and, uh, because of his stand against the Nazis and refusing to have his church become a Nazi church, and great, great testimony and story. But one of the things that uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer experienced as this German theologian pastor is before the outbreak of World War II, he had traveled to the United States and was actually going to live and teach in New York. And he was going to teach, I think, at Union Theological Seminary, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the stories that he writes in his biography that was a tremendous influence on in his life was he began to attend an African-American Baptist church. Now imagine this white German Lutheran theologian, and he loved it. You know why he loved it? Because he heard and saw people that loved Jesus just like he did, and they were expressive. They weren't ashamed to show this expression of joy and excitement. And he loved the music. He loved the preaching. And it was, it was like drinking fresh water to his soul. God wants us to have a new song, not be in a rut. Sing a new song to the Lord. But notice, secondly, 
Secondly, not only to exalt his name, secondly, an essential in worship is to extend his kingdom. Extend his kingdom. Verses 2 through 3, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. We're told how to extend this kingdom. It says we are to proclaim his salvation. Proclaim his salvation. We're told when, do it day after day, not just on Sundays. We're told where, to do it among the nations. Some of you are familiar with the pastor, writer, John Piper. And one of, uh, one of his uh, books that doesn't quite get as much attention is a book that he wrote on missions. And one of the very foundations, you know, of John Piper is he talks a lot about the supremacy of God and the joy of the supremacy of God and the, that... Uh, 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 that, that our joy should be, should be wrapped around in the nature and character of God. And he makes this statement, uh, and I'm just paraphrasing, in a book about missions. You'd read a book about missions, and it, <coughs> it would certainly expect to show that we should be motivated because of uh, the vast numbers of people that are lost, that are going to die without hearing the gospel, and all of those things are true. But here's his, here's his premise in writing about what should be our motivation for missions. The motivation for missions isn't the need, and that's legitimate, but our motivation of missions, our motivation to take the gospel globally around the world should be to exalt and extend the glory and supremacy of God. That should be our motivation, that as we do that, you remember Jesus said something, if my name is lifted high... I will draw all people to myself. Do you think there's a connection between exalting the name of Jesus and God doing his work? And so our work of the kingdom, our message of the kingdom, our extending of the kingdom, it's not through electing Republicans, people, or Democrats. It's not through the ballot box. And listen, we have a civic duty. I get that. But the kingdom, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't mean that we're not to be salt and light. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Its origin is not of this world. We belong, we are citizens of another kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors of this kingdom. And this church is an embassy in a foreign territory. You know, if you were to go to some countries and you were to have trouble and you could make your way to the American embassy, it was as if you're standing on literal American soil. Listen, this is an embassy of the kingdom of God. We should reflect the kingdom of God, not just in our population. And we're thankful that we have a, we have a, we're, we're not a, just a, a one-size-fits-all type of church. But we should reflect this kingdom mentality in not only in our worship, but that our worship is extended in our desire to see the gospel taken to every man, woman, boy, child, every country, every nation. It should be embedded in the very heart of who we are. But at the same time, we ourselves should be engaged. Hello? We should ourselves be engaged in praying for lost people. And, and seeking God-given opportunities 
to have what I would call gospel spiritual conversations that would lead somebody. You know, Henry Blackaby, in experiencing God, and he influenced a, a evangelistic, evangelistic training uh, called Sharing Jesus Without Fear. But if you remember Henry Blackaby, in experiencing God, had this premise. God is at work all around you. And your job, say it that way, is to find out what he's doing and where he's doing and get in on what he's doing. See, we kind of approach it differently. God, get in on what I'm doing. No, you get in on what he's doing. And so sharing Jesus without fear is finding out and believing that God is working in people's lives all around you. Some, he's working in such a degree that you may not know anything about it. And by asking a simple, maybe, question, uh, do you go to church, or something that just has a little bit of a spiritual bait on it, oftentimes is the very thing that can lead into a much more meaningful conversation concerning spiritual things. Do we engage? Are we asking those kind of questions? Are we praying about those kind of opportunities. And see, one of the benefits of corporate worship and how that ties in, we're talking about extending the kingdom. We extend the kingdom by proclaiming His salvation. We, 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 it involves worship because when we come into worship, it's like, again, we're getting recalibrated to the heart of Jesus. We're talking about the heart of worship. What is the heart of Jesus? For we sang it in the very beginning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. Jesus said, I didn't come to be a doctor to the well. I came to minister to the sick. You see, when we come together to worship, what are we doing? We're recalibrating ourselves around the priorities of the kingdom. The kingdom of God. Verse 3 says, Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. You realize in that promise, that covenantal promise God made with Abraham? You realize at the very heart of it was He would be a father to what? Many nations. It wasn't just a limited ethnocentric body of people, of Israelites, it was to be extended. The promises of Abraham were to extend globally all over the world. Multiple, multitudes of people. And you know where we see that so beautifully? It's kind of a, it's kind of a preview of coming attractions. It's when you look in the book of Revelation. Look at, and these will be on the screen. And just, and just several that were just sampled here in Revelation, starting at Revelation 5, 8 through 9. And you see this, this, that representatives from every nation, tribe, and village all over the earth will one day be gathered in heaven. And I want to help people, just like I was helped, to be a part of that multitude. Look at what the Scripture says. And when He, Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord. See, that's worship. Part of worship is that prostrating yourself, falling down before the Lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Boy, that'd be interesting to spend a little time with, wouldn't it? And verse 9, look at what it says. Verse 9, and they sang what? A new song. You mean there's going to be new songs in heaven? 
Sherry, there's going to be new songs in heaven. I tease Sherry. And they sang a new song. Saying, worthy are you, Jesus. That's who they're saying it to. To take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Look at this. From every tribe, language, and people and nation. That's why racism is so crazy and so insidious for a professing believer to have any type of racist prejudice. I don't even, I mean, that's so beyond even, but it says from every what? Tribe, language, people, nation. Revelation 7 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, Korea, Vietnam, Mongolia, Egypt, Somalia, South Africa, England, United States, Guam, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, what are they doing? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, symbol of their righteousness in Jesus, with palm branches, There's that palm branch that we talked about on uh, Palm Sunday. And one last one, Revelation 19.6. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. If you like a nice, quiet church service, you're going to be really, really uncomfortable here. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of water crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns from every nation. We are to proclaim and exalt the name of God, extend His kingdom, and thoroughly, as an essential in our worship, is express His greatness. As we exalt His name, look for ways to extend His kingdom, will be drawn into this third worship essential in expressing His greatness. You see, one of the things you should always ask yourself is, what am I, is, is the words that I'm singing, the worship music that I'm singing, is it, is it me-focused or is it God-focused? Is it expressing the, the greatness of God and, and is it focused on exalting God? Look at verses 4 through 9. For great is the Lord... Psalm 96, verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, verse 7. O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Kind of a picture of the temple. Coming into the the temple of the the king. Come into his courts. Verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. You know the Bible says in Hebrews. Come boldly before the throne of grace. But don't forget that as you come boldly it's to a throne It's to a throne that you come. You know, there's a bit of over-casualness sometimes when we speak 
and think and even worship about God. There are some worship, quote unquote, I wouldn't even call them worship songs, that are just atrocious. Atrocious. Come before the Lord. Come before this throne. And see, our culture, we're not, we, we, we express greatness to people who aren't great. Right? We are a celebrity-obsessed culture. Some of you know more about Johnny Depp's trial than you should or care about. And if you have no clue what I'm talking about, God bless you. We're going to give you sainthood. There are people in our culture that have got TV shows that are famous for nothing else than being famous. I mean, have the Kardashians made a cure for cancer? But why? Because we just are celebrity worshipers. And the same culture that builds the false celebrities up, boy, they take great delight and joy at bringing them down piece by piece. And somebody else will come along and fill the spot. Well, listen, the Bible says we are to ascribe greatness to the Lord. Greatness to the Lord. Verse 6, look at these, these right here in one verse. Verse 6, th- these attributes are personified. Verse 6, splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Stop when you come to those things. Splendor, majesty, strength, beauty are God. The greatness of God. In the last part of verse 8, we're talking about expressing the greatness of, of His greatness isn't just in words, and we're, we're, we can do that. But verse 8 gives us a real practical way to do it. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, right? Bring an offering and come into His courts. Bring an offering. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew this was a, I knew this was a trap. They're going to take an offering. These churches, all they talk about is giving. Well, maybe some, but not this church. My goodness, we don't even take an offering in here. You realize that? We haven't taken an offering in almost two years. I mean, we take an offering, and if you look in the back of your bulletin, we have ways that you give, right? And should give. That's, that's part of Christian stewardship. But we don't, we don't talk a lot. But, but notice this. You know, the Bible it just has different ways that we can bring an offering to the Lord. Uh, Romans 12, 1 is one example that tells us to offer our bodies to the Lord. Scripture says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What's the point? Is that my entire life is an offering of worship to the Lord. I think that has to do with the stewardship of our bodies, our physical bodies. I think it has application to our, our, our physical uh, tent, if you will, uh, and how we keep our bodies. But more than that, is my body, is my mind, is my heart and my soul totally surrendered and wrapped up to the Lord? Are my desires, is my thinking, is my appetites, is my tongue, hello, my tongue, is that an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord? Somebody said the problem 
with, willing, with, a, with, um, with living sacrifices. There's a problem with living sacrifices is that sometimes they wiggle off the altar. Now, some of you need to wake up. We're going to stand up and do the hokey pokey, all right? A living sacrifice, what do we tend to do? We're going to wiggle off because we don't like. Listen, and nobody's lining up to be a sacrifice for anything, right? But we're to offer as a living sacrifice, meaning that I do not belong to myself. I've been bought with a price, and so therefore I'm to honor God. But there's also another way, Hebrews 13, 15, tells us about offering. It says, through him, let us continually, not just on Sunday, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. You see, when you come corporately or even individually and you speak and you voice praise and worship with your mouth, you realize that God connects that as a sacrifice to the Lord. We're not bringing animals to the sacrificial, to the temple to be sacrificed. And we're not, you know, Jesus is the final sacrifice, Hebrews tells us. But he likens our speaking and our words, our praise to that which is pleasing, sacrificial. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were done to bring an offering of of pleasing to the Lord as an atoning for, for sin. Well, we're not sacrificing our words to atone for sin, but we're bringing like a sacrifice of our words that God says, I liken that to the, to the pleasure when I saw the sacrifice that covered, I, I see that as a, as a way that brings me pleasure, if you will, a sacrifice to praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. James says a lot about the tongue and the mouth, right? He says, the tongue, our words, is the strongest, strongest thing known to man. It's stronger than the the rudder of a ship that can steer and guide. In other words, with this mouth, we can bring life and death. We can build up and we can tear down. Some of you, I can, can think of words that were said to you as young as four and five. And they still ring in your ears every once in a while of something that was said. Words are a powerful thing for bad. But he's saying words are also as an instrument of our praise, as a sacrifice of praise. But then there's another and the more obvious of this offering before the Lord is that we worship God as we offer a financial resource to him for his kingdom purpose. Yes, all those things are true, but when you bring an offering, the Bible also talks about bringing a financial gift as an act of worship. We talked about, again, whether it's we collect an offering or however we do it, you write a check, you do it online. Believe it or not, that is an act of worship to the Lord. You're not giving to me. You're not giving to an organization. You're giving it as unto the Lord. You're doing it as, a, as, a, as an act of worship in your, in your expression out of your generosity. That, you're, that, you, that you, the, the generosity that God has shown you, you, you want to do something tangible and, 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 and meaningful 
in offering a sacrifice of an offering before the Lord. And, and the easiest way and the most simple way we do that is through our giving financially, right? There's a great passage that shows about this sacrificial giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, and it'll be on the screen. Paul is commending these Christians who were non-Jews, who sacrificially gave to the poverty of the need of their brothers, their Jewish brothers in Jerusalem, who were experiencing financial drought and persecution because of their Christian faith, these Gentile non-Jewish churches and believers gave in abundance for the need and welfare of men and women that they never saw or they never knew. And so that's kind of the, that's the context of what he writes. Now listen to what he says. He says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in His kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. That's... Uh, around Greece, and they are being tested, these churches in Macedonia, they themselves are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. They're poor themselves, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed or manifested in what? Rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. See, that's where it begins, right? Give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Do you see giving is a ministry that God and Paul in this is commending? But look at verse 7. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us, you excel in all these areas, Paul says... I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Some of you need to excel in the gracious act of giving. And I'm, not, I'm really not talking about just your stewardship among the church and how we support ourselves in the church. I'm talking about something. See, the context of this is they themselves were in poverty but they had a spirit of generosity. So the most generous people I've known in my life were not financially well-to-do. Why? Because it's a heart issue. It was a heart issue. And some of the stingiest people I've known are people that have lots of money. And so the spirit of generosity, worship, Expressing greatness and the priority of God. See, see with your finances, we, we show and express what our priorities are. I know people who counsel people in 
financial stewardship. And one of the first things they have them do is say, bring me, of course, they don't do this anymore, bring your checkbook. (laughs) Show me on your phone, your bank statement or whatever. Why? Because they can look at that and see where your heart is. Right? See where your heart is. What do you flush money at? And you give a little tip to God. Leave him a little five. Right? Hey, if that's all you have, the widow's might, right? Because what? God does not look up on the amount. He looks on the heart. But so what happens is, 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 is my priorities reflected? See, this goes back to my whole life as an act of worship. Is my worship, is it reflected in my stewardship of my time, my talents, my gifts, and my, what, treasures? Am I reflecting God and exalting God? And the last of these essentials to worship is not only exalting His name, extending His kingdom, expressing His greatness, but number four is an expect His coming. Yes, right here in Psalm 96, we see the coming of the Lord. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes. The New King James says, He is coming. He is coming. And He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in His faithfulness. You see, the reason a Christian can take joy in His coming is because we have been judged already in His righteousness. How? We've been judged in Christ. We have been judged in Christ. Jesus Christ met the demands of the law on my behalf and that I don't have to fear the judgment of God because Christ Jesus Himself has received. He who knew no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. So I can anticipate He's coming. He's coming. Expect His coming. And I tell you, a person that has an expectation of the coming of Christ will be seen in your attitude of worship. Because are you worshiping one that is just kind of just kind of beyond? Or is my worship to one that I see by faith, but one day I know I will what? See him that I sing, that I express. I will see him what? Face to face. That what I know in part, one day I will be in him complete and worship him in the beauty of his holiness. And his splendor. That should reflect in how we worship right now. That should express our, our heart and our attitude. In how we take and understand our worship before the Lord. Now as we close this morning. Let me just give you four very practical ways to, apl- to apply these in a very practical way. See, this is really good theoretical theology. We're all in agreement, but kind of like, so what? 
What do I do with all this? How, how do I implement this? Well, let me just give you a few suggestions. One, read, read the psalm. I would encourage you, read Psalm 96. Read it three or four times this week. And stop at each of these breaks and just reflect Read it in a different version. You read the New King James, read it, read it in the NIV. You read it in the NIV, read it in the New King James. ESV, New Living Translation. I mean, read it in a different version to help you see freshness and different ways people have approached it. But here's a way to just break down these four areas that we looked at as essentials. And let me just suggest to you some real practical things. One, that when we looked at exalting His name about singing to the Lord a new song, let me encourage you to do that. Sing to the Lord. Now again, you can do it by yourself. You can do it, hum, whatever. You know, one of the greatest tools of worship is a hymnal, or, or, and you can access that online. You can, you, can get one of the, you can access all sorts of things online that, that will aid you in your worship. Start with Amazing Grace. Most people know Amazing Grace. And just in your private, say, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I mean, sing it to the Lord. Sing something that you're saying, Lord, I'm going to offer you a new song. Well, I'll feel silly. Well, nobody will be around you, so don't worry about it. Right? God won't think you're silly. But you know what? There's something about engaging my heart and my mouth. Why does the Bible say, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? There's something about singing. Try it. Try singing. And try some different ways to do it. Extending his kingdom. Talk about uh, proclaiming the gospel. Pray. Make intentional prayer for an unbeliever, family, co-worker, friend, somebody. That you're praying for that person. And you're praying for God to, we say, open a door. Open a door. Open a, a maybe a door... Uh, in, in a conversation that you might be able to engage, maybe invite them to church, maybe engage them in, in something that has a bit of spiritual salt on it that might be used of God to have a spiritual gospel conversation. Thirdly, we talk about express His greatness. Here's some practical ways. Have you ever just stopped and whether you wrote it down, writing down is good, of things that you're thankful for? Thankful to the Lord? Have you ever just really stopped and put those down on, on a piece of paper and said, God, I'm thankful for all these things. Pray about a sacrificial monetary gift. And I'm saying this above and beyond your regular church giving. But maybe someone who has a need. Maybe a ministry like a woman's choice or a lighthouse. Or, or one of our four missions that are on our website, that you're going to offer something as a, as a generous gift, as an expression of the greatness of God. And then how do I expect His coming? How do I expect His coming? How do I do that? Well, how about spend a little time reading and going over some scriptures that have to do with His second coming? Here's a news flash. We just finished 1 Thessalonians. Go back and reread 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. We spent some time talking about the second coming of Christ. 
You can go back and listen to those messages online. Go back and read those verses. Go and read it. Don't get wrapped up in when the, 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 the timing and this event and is Russia and Putin the Antichrist and all that. Don't waste your time. Focus on what we do know. He is coming back at an hour you know not when. And say, God, increase in me the sense and expectation of your coming. There's a great little word in the, actually it was originally in the Aramaic, but translated in the Greek, Maranatha. And it's in 1 Corinthians 16.22. And it just, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, it just says, our Lord come. But the Greek word is Maranatha. And what I did is I, I took that little word, put it on a sticky note in a couple of spots. So when I see that word Maranatha, say, hey, he's coming back. No matter how bad it is, he's coming back. No matter how bad the news is and what volatility there is in our economy and in our world and foreign affairs, guess what? Maranatha, he's coming back. And when the church would gather for the Lord's table and as they would, and as they would leave that Lord's table... Oftentimes, they traditionally would say to each other, Maranatha, Maranatha, because the Lord Jesus is coming back. Essentials to worship. It's not the complete, but I tell you, these four pillars are, must be embedded not only in how we worship personally, but also as a church. Are we exalting the name of Christ? Are we extending His kingdom through the gospel? Are we expressing the greatness of Jesus? And do we live with an expectation that he is coming again. Let's pray. Gracious Father, how we thank you for your gift of Christ. How we thank you for the glorious message of the gospel. How we thank you that Jesus rescued us from our prison of sin. Father, as we remind ourselves and perhaps learn of what it means to, that worship is more than just me coming and watching a group of people sing some songs and leaving and saying, oh, that's worship. God, that you've called me. You saved me to be a worshiper to you. God, may in my life, may I be more faithful to exalt your name. May I be more faithful in looking for opportunities to extend the kingdom of Jesus through my witness to the gospel. Lord, I'm quick to express the greatness of my favorite team or somebody I'm really impressed with. But do I really take that same passion and express the greatness of the one who made me, the one who saved me? And Lord, help me live my days and recognizing that not only are my days numbered on this earth, but Lord, this earth's days are numbered. And that soon, by the very words of Jesus himself, who never lied, never deceived, never misspoke, promised that he would come again. Do I live with that expectation? And how, Jesus, would that change in the way that I think about worship. That the one I'm worshiping, I will one day see face to face. 
help me, help this church have the heart of worship. Let's stand to our feet as we just sing that song that kind of using as a theme a bit, the heart of worship, because that's what we want. We're not looking for the techniques and styles, but God help me to have a heart of worship. Let's sing that to the Lord this morning. I'm God.